If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please go ahead and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're going to be in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament chapter 30. In just a few moments, I'm going to read for us verses 6 through 8. If you don't have a Bible this morning, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew back in front of you. Um, we would love for you to grab that, take it home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. You're welcome to take that home with you today. Read it during the week. You could also pull out your phone, okay, on there, on our app. We're going to have some notes for you to be able to take along with the sermon. You can check out uh, the references to Scripture on there. You could also pull out your phone and turn over to YouVersion. It's a great Bible app. I'm going to be preaching from the ESV translation, so you can flip over that if you want to follow along with me. Before I jump in and read our text for this morning, I want to give you some context, a little bit of background as to what's going on in this passage, but also as to what we're going to be doing this morning. So we are in week two of a sermon series called Engage with God. We're going to be spending five weeks talking about prayer. I'm excited, so excited about that because in addition to you hearing about um, this conversation here in the worship center, it's going to overflow into all of the teaching that we do. So in kids ministry, student ministry, all of our adult groups, we're going to be unpacking a curriculum called Engage with God that's focused in on prayer. Under the leadership of, of our lead pastor, Larry Riley, we want to say, we want to shout from the rooftops that prayer is important, that prayer is vital, that prayer is essential. You see, prayer undergirds all that we do in the name of Jesus and for the name of Jesus. Now, about that, our, our, our focus this morning, as it's been mentioned a couple times, is to turn our attention to what a biblical culture of prayer should look like. And to dive into that topic, uh, I've decided to do a brief survey or a character study on a man that most of us are probably familiar with or have heard of from the Bible. His name is David. Okay, so David, he's the guy who took down the giant Goliath with the sling, with the stone. Um, he is well known uh, for being a man of God. He uh, was a leader, a great leader. He was a general, a battle general. He was a king as we'll see. But in addition to all these great qualities, if you know a little bit about scripture, you know that David was also an adulterer. He was a murderer. He made a mess of his life many times at certain points. But yet through all that, he was known as a man after God's own heart. And he was a prayer warrior. In fact, most of the Psalter, the 150 Psalms that we have, the majority of those were written by David, prayers to God, songs to God. So we're picking up in 1 Samuel 30. It's right in the middle of David's story. Let me give you a little bit of background here. So David, he is on the run from a man named Saul. Saul is the first king of God's people. Saul is even bigger of a mess than David. Saul is jealous of David because he believes that David's going to take over his throne. So Saul's been chasing David around trying to kill him. David had a couple of opportunities that you can read about in 1 Samuel to actually kill Saul, but he chose not to do that. He chose not to do that because he recognized that God had placed Saul in this position. And where we pick up in our story, David and his men, his soldiers, they're coming back 
to a city where all the wives and the children of these men are. And when they get back, they see that the city is on fire, okay? And all the women, all the children have been taken captive. They are gone. And that's where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 6 through 8. God's word says this. And David was greatly distressed. I think it's a bit of an understatement. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David, in verse 8. And David inquired of the Lord. Let me say that again. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, today as we unpack your word and as we look at this topic of prayer, there's so much to be said. But we know, God, how foundational it is to be able to come to you and converse with you. I thank you that your son Jesus has made a way for us to have access to you, a holy God. Pray that this morning that our affections for Jesus would grow or they would begin today because of the preaching of your word. I pray, God, that you would just bring about a sense of unity in our body as it comes to prayer and that we would recognize how much you love us. You loved us so much you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. Lord, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So it was Peter Drucker who famously said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think that most of us, if we really thought about this statement, we would probably agree. I certainly do. And while most of us would recognize, probably at points in our lives, recognize that we have been a part of a strong, healthy culture, whether that's at work or at school or part of a ball team or a church, while we might be able to recognize what that feels like, it can be hard sometimes to actually identify what behaviors are, what values are that create a healthy culture. I want to introduce to you three teams or companies that many have said have a strong culture. They exhibit a strong culture. And I'm going to be sure to refer back to these later on in the sermon. But the first one is this. There was a man who was born here in Indiana, in Martinsville, Indiana, in 1910. He would become a basketball college coach at a prestigious university in the year 1948. This man uh, cared uh, extensively, cared a lot about the culture of his team. He would go on to lead his team and many teams to 10 national championships. And the culture that he set for his teams is still considered today to be one of the best in all of sports. But what was it about this culture that made that team so successful? Now, I'd venture a guess that everyone in the worship center is probably familiar with this next company. They are probably the leader in the entertainment world. Well, first of all, they created the best illustrated movie of all time, The Lion King. They uh, purchased Pixar in 2006. They acquired Marvel in 2009. And they went on to uh, finish it off by acquiring Lucasfilm in 2012. One of their resorts is referred to as the most magical place on earth 
probably know this company. They have a culture of service. They like to put their guests first. But what if I told you that there was actually a bit more to their culture? Third story involves a company that is also extremely familiar to everyone probably here in the worship center. In the early 2000s, there was this race to see what company could create a software engine that would connect internet users to targeted searches. Now, the overwhelming favorite to accomplish this task was a company called Overture. Probably not familiar with that company. You see, Overture, they got very complacent. But a small company founded by Larry Page would soon find out that they had an opportunity to step into this market. This company's profits would go from $6 million to $99 million in under a year. How did they do it? What was it about their culture that made them successful? Have you ever been a part of an amazing culture? Have you ever been a part of an amazing culture? Maybe for you, you're a part of that right now. You're at work and you wake up every day and you go to work and you're energized, you're excited to be there and you just can't wait to get to work and it's because of the culture that you love your work. Or maybe for you, it's your home life. Maybe you grew up in a home life where the culture was just fantastic. I know for me, I grew up in an amazing home life. I grew up, I mean, it was awesome because they taught me to love the Indiana Hoosiers. Um, no, my mom made the best sugar cookies that anyone has ever tasted. And so my home life had a great culture, and that has bled into my adult home life. Maybe that's the case for you. If not those two things, then what about at school? Maybe you had an awesome school that you were a part of. You know, the principal, man, the principal truly cared about the students. Or maybe it was the drama teacher that wanted to make sure that every rehearsal was fun. Or maybe it was the coach that cared more about win, or cared less about winning and more about actually making you a better young man in life or a better young woman in life. Again, I think it's likely that most of us in this worship center have been a part of some group, have been a part of some community where we can point to and say, man, these things just clicked. The culture was awesome. But what was it? What was it about those groups that made a healthy culture? Well, I said earlier that we believe here at Graceland that prayer is foundational to who we are. And we want to continue to build and foster a biblical culture of prayer. But the question is, how do we do this? How do we do it? Well, we're going to spend the rest of our time answering that question. And to do that, we're going to turn our attention back to 1 Samuel in chapter 30. We're going to study King David. And I want to offer up to you three ways to foster a biblical culture of prayer. Three ways that you can do this both personally, individually in your life, and then corporately. How we can do this collectively together as a church. And here's the first one. We need to set disciplines. We need to set disciplines. Now, if you've ever heard me preach before, then you know that I, I like to use alliteration in my sermons. So I'm Baptist, so I like to use alliteration. And if you don't know what alliteration is, then that means you use like the first letter um, for your points that are all the same, or maybe it's just the sound that matches up. And I do this for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's a great mnemonic device for you to actually internalize what it is that I'm saying, okay? I want you to walk out of this place and not just hear something and then nothing be different, but I want you to hear it, internalize it. I want it to circulate in your body throughout the week so that you remember it and, and your behavior actually changes. 
But secondly, I also do this just because I'm a type A personality and I don't have it in me to not be overtly organized when I preach. And I I know some of you appreciate that and some of you can't stand it, but that's just who I am and that's how I'm gonna preach. Um, But I wanna let you in on a little bit of, of a secret on this first point. Couldn't come up with a verb I thought that was good enough, that was quite right, that started with an S. And so I kind of landed on set, this verb set disciplines. But here's what I really mean. If you don't have any disciplines when it comes to your prayer life, you need to establish a foundation of prayer in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to establish that today. And if you have a good foundation, then I I want you to tighten that up. I want you to really build on those disciplines of prayer, okay? Now, how do we see that here in the life of David? Now, remember back with me, David, he's coming back to this city called Ziklag, and everything is on fire. The women, the children, they're gone. And what do we see David's immediate response to be? Well, he goes to prayer. He goes to God in prayer. And I believe he does that because prayer is a spiritual discipline in his life. It is a habit. It is second nature. This is not the first time we see David do it, and it certainly will not be the last time. If you look back in 1 Samuel chapter 23, in verses 2, 4, and 9, David goes to God in prayer. He talks to God before he goes in to battle. And if you jump forward in 2 Samuel, in chapters 2, in chapters 5, in chapters 21, he goes to God in prayer. Prayer must be a habit. It must be a spiritual discipline for us as individuals and as a church. But let me ask you this. Are you doing this? Is discipline part of the culture of your prayer life? Is prayer one of the habits of our church? Earlier, I mentioned a college coach. He would go on to lead his basketball teams to 10 national championships. Now, this man was a basketball mastermind. His teams always came prepared. Occasionally, they might be outscored for a little bit, but seldom, if ever, were they ever outplayed or out-hustled. The emphasis for his team was on discipline, hard work, aggressive defense, team play, getting everyone on the court involved as a unit. The culture for this team was discipline. I'm sure that many of you have heard of a man named John Wooden and how he coached some of the greatest teams in all of college basketball during his tenure at UCLA. The hard work, the discipline that they put into practice is what made all the difference in the games. The same is true for us. The discipline of our prayer will make all the difference when it comes to the battles that we face. Prayer should always be a precursor to battle. Prayer was always a precursor to battle for David. I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, I'm never going to go to battle like King David, and I pray that, that we don't. But each and every one of us face spiritual battles all the time, and we must go to God in prayer before we encounter that battle. If you struggle with lust, you need to pray about that regularly so that when you encounter the battle, when you encounter the temptation, you've already prayed about it so you can say no in those circumstances. When you go to the gym, you've already prayed about it, and you see that girl, you can say, no, I'm not gonna look. If you struggle with pride, You need to pray about that before you encounter situations. 
that can make you prideful, if you struggle with unbelief, if you struggle with um, assurance of salvation, then I would encourage you to pray about those things so that when you're in the midst of that temptation, when you're isolated and you're scared, you've already prayed about that battle. And you go back to God in prayer in those moments. You see, prayer won't be the immediate response for us in the hard times or in the good times if it is not a regular rhythm of our lives. Now, I don't want you to think that David was perfect in this. He was not perfect in his discipline with prayer. I've already mentioned that he made a mess of his life. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. If you look back to Psalm 32, you'll see that it took him a year to actually bring and confess some of the sins that he had before God. But he had a discipline of prayer. And why did he have a discipline of prayer? Because he delighted in God. He delighted in God. In order for you to have a discipline of prayer, you must delight in Jesus Christ. In order for us as a church to have a culture of prayer, we must delight in Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second way that we can foster a culture of prayer is to show vulnerability. We need to show vulnerability. So that's the second S that I have for us this morning. Look back with me at verse 6. It says that after all these crazy things happened, that David was strengthened in the Lord. He was strengthened in the Lord. So here's what David brought to God. He brought to God his weakness, and God gave him strength. He brought to God his weakness and showed that he had a dependence upon God to be strengthened. If you've had a chance to be with us on Wednesday nights, they have been very encouraging for me. We've had prayer gatherings all year and all semester. And we've had this working definition of prayer that I, that I love. We've said that prayer is a, a cry for relationship and a commitment to dependence. Prayer is a cry for relationship and a commitment to dependence. Think about that. This definition shows that we have a need for God. David here reveals that he is vulnerable and he needs to go to God time and time again to be strengthened. Earlier I mentioned Psalm 32. You'll read there that David brings God his iniquities. He brings God his transgressions. He brings his witnesses before the Father. But let me ask you this question. Is vulnerability a part of the culture of your prayer life? Are you vulnerable before God? Is vulnerability a part of the culture of Graceland? I believe it is. I believe it is. I believe that we bring God all of our mess and all of our weaknesses, and in turn, he gives us strength and helps us move forward. Now, in case you've been uh, living under a rock maybe for the last 10 years, the, the second um, story that I shared earlier had to do with the company Walt Disney. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with this company. You know then that at their resorts, their culture is very much about the guest and about service and making the guest feel welcome. But I mentioned that I believe there's another value that they hold in high esteem. In his book, uh, former CEO Robert Iger, he tells of a horrific accident that took place in June of 2016. You may have heard about this in the news. Now, Robert Iger at the time, he was over in Shanghai and he's about ready to launch a resort for the first time over in China. And then this is right after the mass shooting that took place in Orlando. And while in Shanghai, Robert Iger gets a call uh, about a horrific accident that took place. A two-year-old boy was attacked by an alligator and killed 
at one of their resorts in Florida. Now, most companies in this situation would do everything that they could to not have any liability or vulnerability when it came to this. But Iger, because of the culture that they had at Disney, said, no, we're going to address this head on. So he talked to the media right away. He actually called up the family immediately and apologized for what was going on. And they made changes that weekend to their resort, putting up signs, putting up barriers so that nothing like this would ever happen again. Most companies, most people, myself certainly included, do not like to show weakness. We just don't like to show weakness. We don't like to be vulnerable. Maybe you have been burned at church because you've opened up and you've been vulnerable. And now because of that, you've kind of closed off and you've put up this facade and this front. Know that God does not need that from us. He doesn't want that from us. He wants us to be vulnerable when we come to him in prayer. He wants our weakness. He wants that. I love that Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, but he said to me, and he here is Jesus, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. You see that Paul gives his weakness and now the power of Christ rests in him. He continues in verse 10 and says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And again, David, he brings all of his messed up life, his weakness, here to God. He's made some mistakes. All the women and the children are God and he, are, are gone and he goes to God bringing his weakness. David is vulnerable in his prayer life. And again, how is he able to do this? How can we be vulnerable before a holy God? It's only if we delight in him. You see, vulnerability leads to trust. And we need to trust in God in our prayer life so that we bring that to him in order for you to have vulnerability in your prayer life you must delight in Jesus in order for our church to have a culture of vulnerability we must delight in Jesus finally a third way that we can foster a culture of prayer is to seek direction so we're going to set disciplines we're going to show vulnerability and we're going to seek direction now, again, put yourself in David's place. Put yourself in David's place. You've been gone for a little while. You're exhausted. You're tired. You come back to camp, and everything's on fire. All the women are gone. All the children are gone. And not only that, but all of your men, they decide, hey, why don't we just stone David and kill him because of this? Now, if I was in that situation, if you were in that situation, here's how most of us would respond. First of all, we would probably run right? We would just get out of Dodge and be like, man, I'm going to get away from here and try my best out in the wilderness, okay? But if we didn't do that, we would probably just get angry and just react and go and try to, to charge the hill and go find the people and kill as many of them as we can. We would get angry. But what does David do? What's his response in this circumstance? Look back with me at verse 8. David asked God questions, he asks God questions. He says, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He had a discipline in 
prayer, of going to God in prayer no matter the circumstance. He brought his vulnerability, his weakness to God. And then he asked God, hey, what should I do? What should I do? Do you pray like that? Do we pray like that? Do we seek his direction? Let me ask you this. When is the last time you sought God's advice and didn't just go to him and ask him to place a stamp of approval on what it is that you want? Think about that with me. When's the last time you went to him and asked an open-ended question and said, God, what would you have me do rather than bringing him what it is that you want and say, God, just bless that. Put your stamp of approval on that. It's a big, big difference. If we're honest, most of us don't pray like this. We don't seek direction. We just want blessing. And again, seeking blessing and and, and petitioning God is not a bad thing. That's a big part of prayer. But a big part of prayer also should be asking God questions and then even maybe waiting for a response. We may have to ask God the same question over and over again, day after day, month after month, maybe even year after year, and waiting for that response. But we need to ask him. The third company that I, or the third story that I mentioned earlier where they go from $6 million to $99 million in one year is the company Google. How and why did this happen? Well, CEO of Google knew that their search engine called AdWords was really, really struggling. It couldn't get searches to the right links, so he began to ask questions. How can we change this? How can we completely overhaul this? It was a culture in their company to ask questions. So he actually puts this post-it note up in a break room wanting to know about this. And one night, a man who didn't work in that division, who was a low-level employee at Google, his name was Jeff Dean, he saw it. And even though it wasn't his job, he went and worked all weekend on trying to fix an algorithm for this search engine, and it worked. And you see, Google really stepped into the spotlight. It changed the face of the company. It eventually changed the internet search space. But Google had a culture where asking questions was okay and it was encouraged. The CEO of the company was humble enough to say it's not about me, but this low-level employee could step in and make a huge change for the company. You see, God wants us to approach him with questions. God wants us to seek direction from him. I love how it says this in 1 John chapter 5, verse uh, Chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We need to come to God asking questions, seeking direction. And we receive confidence when we ask according to his will and ask that his will be done in our lives. As we finish up here, I want to I make it really practical for you. And I want you to internalize this and think about your own prayer life. What does the culture of prayer look like in your life? What does it look like for Ryan? Put your name in that spot. What does it look like for you? And then what do you think the culture of prayer looks like at Graceland? Because I believe we need to be disciplined. I believe we need to be vulnerable. And I I believe we need to seek direction. And I think the only way that we can truly step in to those things, into those behaviors, into those values, and make that a culture is if we delight in Jesus. If we delight in 
Jesus. David had a, a culture of prayer that, that was very much disciplined, that was vulnerable. He would seek direction because he delighted in God. He delighted in God. But as I've said time and time again, he was flawed, he was messed up, he was broken, and he was just this small glimpse of something that pointed to, to someone so much greater. We know who that is, that that's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of what our prayer life should look like and should be modeled after. See, Jesus delighted in God the Father. Jesus delighted in God the Father. He had a discipline of prayer. If you looked at the Gospels, he went to God the Father regularly over and over and over again in prayer. He had a vulnerability to his prayer life. He brought his human weakness to God. He also sought direction time and time again, asking questions, even so much as to ask God, if you would let this cup pass for me, but your will be done and not mine. What is our culture of prayer? What is our culture of prayer? Today is a big day. It's a pivotal day in the life of our church. And prayer must be the thing that undergirds it all. We must pray in the name of Jesus and for the name of Jesus. But I think it starts individually with each and every one of us that we would delight in Jesus and that would overflow into a strong and healthy culture of prayer that we could come together collectively and corporately and seek after the will of God for our lives.